Black Aspiration Project is a knowledge mobilization initiative that strives to ensure that the voices, experiences, and specific health concerns of Black communities are recognized, valued, and integrated into healthcare policies, practices, and support services. As part of the project, we have created a podcast series featuring different healthcare leaders, community members, and advocates for Black health, exploring the unique experiences, challenges, and resiliency of Black individuals in relation to their health and healthcare. The Black Aspiration Project is sponsored by Western University's Research Mobilization, Creation, and Innovation Grants for Shirk-related research. Today, we are joined by Shani Robertson, a registered midwife who has been practicing since 2019 when she graduated from the Midwifery Education Program at Toronto Metropolitan University. She is also a public health consultant, leading her own company, Own Volition, since 2013. Shani has made a substantial impact on the well-being of marginalized communities here in Ontario through her intersection of healthcare with social advocacy and research. Shani has an extensive and diverse professional background spanning fields such as midwifery, health education, and behavioral change communication, reflecting her unwavering commitment to the betterment of Black health and human rights. So Shani, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me on today. Um, my first question is a general question we ask everyone who comes on to the podcast, but it's what stands between you and the world you wish to live in? <laughs> Oh, it could be a simple answer. It could be a long answer, but it's not going to be one that's going to be a, a neat sound bite. Um, I think, honestly, like I've thought about this for a while, and I think sometimes it comes down to um, just basic human greed. I think sometimes it comes down to uh, wishing to keep the power structures in place as they are, because the reality is, is that it can really be as simple as possible to make the world the way that we all want it to be. One that's peaceful, one where everybody gets access to the same resources, when everybody can have similar health outcomes. Like it can be so simple, but um, sometimes I think uh, it's people just don't want to believe that if everybody gets equality, that they also won't get the same benefits when, you know, as the saying goes, a rising tide lifts all boats, right? So um, I think it's just, uh, I think it's fair from a lot of people, fair uh, to really put what we've known for decades, really, um, into practice. Um, that's the kind of the, the general answer, if you want to get into it. I think it's, um, we need to change policies. We need to start creating and collecting uh, race-based data. Um, we need to really change curriculums in all clinical fields. Um, we need to really make sure, I think, uh, for us living in democratic societies that we really hold our politicians accountable to make sure that the policies that they want to implement or bring to the floor of parliament um, really do benefit everybody and don't harm anybody. Yeah, definitely. Um, so before you becoming a midwife, you worked as a public health consultant with NGOs on issues such as healthcare for the uninsured, human rights, and HIV AIDS and sexual health. You also worked with the Black Coalition for AIDS Prevention and Ontario HIV Treatment Network. Um, so could you tell us a bit more about your work with these organizations? Yeah, so I mean, Black Cap, so, so a while back, uh, Black Cap was, Black Coalition for AIDS Prevention was my first job straight out of uh, U of T. Um, I was the women's prevention coordinator, so I really focused on doing research on uh, the prevention um, and the risk factors for HIV transmission amongst young Black women in Toronto. 
the report I wrote, Who Feels It Knows, I wrote back in 2007. And uh, a PhD student I ran into a year or two ago was like, that's still the only document that we have that really focused on that population, which I was quite surprised. Um, and But it's also really important to know, like every single population um, does have its own unique challenges. Um, and so really, you know, always trying to drill down is like, okay, for this population, what are the unique challenges? It's not to say that the challenges are based on race and maybe based on systemic oppressions, um, but really understanding with, you know, what are the roadblocks to you taking charge of your health? Um, I went and got my master's after that with the Ontario HIV Treatment Network. Um, I was the coordinator in a few projects. One of them was facilitators and buyers to engaging in HIV research um, and also just engaging in, you know, taking charge of people's health was another factor of that too. Um, and then I left and started my own consulting company um, and which was really, really enriching because I really got to start to work with different organizations on different health issues. But I started to see that there were very similar you know, trends across the board, no matter what an organization focused on, there were still some really common issues that really kind of ran across the board there. Um, and all of them getting back to, there's a lack of race-based data, therefore they can't sometimes justify the need for funding specific programs. Um, there's of course the issues of systemic oppression, the issues, all the issues related to social determinants of health, um, you know, lack of status for people who um, are having health challenges, um, the exorbitant cost of healthcare if you don't have provincial health insurance. Um, and often if you're undocumented, you're also living um, in poverty most of the time. And so you're then having to make some pretty hard decisions about like, am I eating or am I paying this hospital bill? Am I eating or am I buying this medication? Am I eating or, you know, uh, is my kid going to go to school? Um, there's just a lot of challenges that people have to face. Um, and often, unfortunately, health is often put to the back burner until it becomes an absolute crisis, um, which is the one theme that I saw across the board with all the different organizations is that when people are facing multiple challenges, um, unless their health is like, you know, in imminent danger, um, they're going to put it on the back burner to deal with the more seemingly day to day issues that, you know, really impact their survival. Yeah. Um, so you touched on this a little bit, but you mentioned that you founded Own Volition Health, which is a public health consulting company that focuses yeah. on addressing public health issues through a social determinants of health and anti-oppressive, anti-racist lens. Yeah. Um, so what pushed you to create the company? Um, it's about a decade old now, so yeah, that's very exciting. Um, yeah. So what were your goals with it and have they changed at all? Have you accomplished them? Yeah, I mean, my my biggest goal, I think, um, ironically, when I was doing research work um, away from frontline, the biggest frustration I had was just how long the research process took. And a lot of it really came down to a lot of politics behind the board. Um, sometimes in academia, there can be a lot of um, egos at the table. And instead of focusing on what do we need to do to really get this work done and get these results of the community, it gets into who gets, you know, first place on 
the authors and the authorship on the paper, right? And I think what frustrated was frustrating to me also too was the lack of knowledge translation. So you know, research is done, but then getting that information to the public in you know easy to say digestible forms, um, and so getting it out in a form that can like help policymakers you know develop evidence based strategies. There was just a really massive gap where there's like all this research and then like it trickles down to this much actually coming out and getting out in an accessible way. So that was part of the um, drive that I had when I left working um, in, for a research institution to then start my own my own company. And I'm also recognizing that um, a lot of organizations just didn't have the capacity to um, do the work that they needed to support the work. So program evaluation, qualitative, quantitative research, um, behavior change communication, also known as, as social marketing. Um, and health education in innovative ways um, were kind of what really drove me to be like, okay, how do we not just take this information from an academic paper, but how do we put it into practice? How do we make it enjoyable, digestible, um, allow people to kind of like, in, you know, be keen to actually learn about their health? Yeah. Have I, in, have I, have I made the goals? I mean, we're still seeing health disparities. So my, the one man band has not been successful in that, but um, I'm, I'm definitely still very much, um, I'm, I'm, I'm really still very happy to be keep, to keep going as a, as a public health consultant in, in this vein. There's a lot of work to do. Um, and as I said to some of my repeat clients, you know, I'm like, I feel like I wrote this for you five years ago. They're like, yeah. And I'm like, but nothing's changed. And the funders still want us to say the same thing, but then they're not willing to change things. So until somebody hears us, I'm just going to keep doing this work. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned stepping away from research and like working on the front lines. So uh, yeah. to change gears a little bit, what led you to midwifery and what has your experience been like as a queer black midwife? Huh. Uh, so fun fact, I wanted to be an OB since I was four. Um, I found a medical encyclopedia in my parents' bookshelf, which is crazy because they're in business. I don't know why they had it on the shelf. Um, but I cracked it open. I saw this baby being delivered and I told my parents, I'm like, I don't want to give birth. But I definitely want to do that. I want to deliver babies. I'm like, oh, you want to be an OB? And I was like, hmm, I guess I want to be an OB. Um, and so I kind of had this path where I meandered. And there was a way that obstetricians function in North America that um, it was very, very different from how I grew up. So I grew up in Barbados. I grew up in the Caribbean. Um, I didn't leave, didn't leave until I was 18. And um, so their doctors very much have a more personal relationship with you. They kind of like really try to be present at births. They try to really establish a really good relationship with patients as they go through. Um, and I found that obstetrics in North America followed a very, very different model. It was very much like a factory, you know, churning through shorter appointments, not giving people the information that they need, um, people feeling very disconnected from the care that they had. Um, and that left me so sour to the point that by the end of my first degree, I was like, I don't think I want to do obstetrics anymore. I don't think I want to be an obstetrician, which was crazy for me because um, I didn't want to do anything else. And so my mom was like, is there anything else? I said, public health. And she's like, work in it. So graduated, worked at Black Hat, Black Coalition for AIDS Prevention, then went and did my master's. And I was like, oh, OK, this is good. And then um, I came back to Toronto. So I went to Emory in the States in Atlanta for two years. And then I came back and my partner time um, was like, okay, it's time for us to start a family. Um, she got pregnant and it's like, okay, midwife. And I was like, OB. And she's like, midwife. And I'm like, what? 
Because then I, you know, you hear about midwifery from my parents and, you know, my, all my parents were like, we were born at home. What are you talking about? But then it makes it seem like it's this ancient, you know, donkey cart, kerosene, lantern time of life that, you know, is just outdated. Um, and so I actually was a little bit skeptical when went, went into our first appointment. And um, I remember getting into a discussion with the midwife and I was like, well, you know, if this happens, then da 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 da. And she's like, well, then da da da. And I'm like, oh there's like science in here and stuff. You know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I got, I got my, I got my butt handed to me. Um, And so then, you know, my, the first birth I actually ever attended was the birth of, my, of birth of our daughter, which was beautiful. And it was actually after that, the midwife actually said to me, she's like, I think you would be really good at this. And I was like, hmm, that's weird. And then like, you know, I'm working, you know, writing papers and, I think maybe a year and a half later, I was working on a consulting project and I was just like, I miss the frontline piece of the work. I miss my sciences. I miss, you know, doing, you know, tests. I miss all that piece. And then, you know, my soul was like, I think I want to do midwifery. And it was like that. And so then I applied and got in um, on the first try. And um, it, <laughs> one of the most, to put it, to put it lightly, it was one of the most challenging uh, degrees I've ever completed, but I'm very glad I completed it. Um, in terms of being a Black queer midwife, that's interesting. I don't always get to identify as queer, depending on the populations that I work with, um, because homophobia is real, even though we live in North America. Um, so everyone, obviously, I can easily identify as a, as a Black midwife. Um, depending on what I wear on the day, sometimes I can fly under the radar. Although some of my friends say there's no way that you can hide your queerness. <laughs> um, but it's been an interesting experience. Um, it's been great to be able to provide care to families, either those who are black, those who are queer, those who, you know, cross the, both of those lines. Um, it's also had its challenges, of course, because we're still working in a system that's still very much kind of, structured off of a very of, of white supremacy um has a bit of a capitalistic mindset so midwifery can be a bit rebellious at times where we want to like take more time with patients see less patients give more care you know at a flat rate um which has its pros and cons of course um but it has been also a very enriching experience um to you know, to get to be the part of, of of the journey of people, especially Black families, Black queer families, queer families, has has been really invigorating. It gives me a sense of purpose. It it reminds me, you know, all those years ago is why I wanted to deliver babies. I've gotten the experience of, you know, delivering the babies of perfect strangers who I've formed bonds with. And, you know, recently I've gotten to deliver the babies of family members and very close friends, which was just so thrilling, right? And just knowing that they would, you know, doing my absolute, you know, most to make sure that they got the best care experience as possible. Um, and not just because they're friends and family, but just really also, you know, doing that and having that drive throughout everybody before I started taking care of friends and family. Like that was just been always my, 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 my MO. So it's been quite enriching, exhausting at times, no question. That's why I'm taking a sabbatical now. Um, but it also has been pretty life changing at times. Yeah. Um. So you just mentioned your sabbatical. Um. I yeah. saw on your Instagram that you're you're leaving and you're pra gonna practice in the Barbados. Yeah. So I'm gonna. I'm, yeah. So yeah. Surprise. I'm gonna. I'm moving to Barbados. I got my license to practice there. 
um, still kind of settling down on what that's going to look like. Um, so stay tuned. And uh, yeah, to give it a shot also to be closer to my family. So uh, my parents are still there. You know, my kids decided that she too loves Barbados and has decided she's like, I'm going there and I'm not coming back. And I'm like, okay, I guess, I guess everybody's, everybody's going back. Right. So it's in part to also, um, as I said to a friend the other day, you know, doing this work is can be quite exhausting. There's a lot of giving, a lot of putting out, and there's very little putting in. And mm-hmm. so to be able to go to a country, go to an island, to be in an environment where there's, yes, I will put out, but then there are also people, there's an environment, there's nature, there's an ocean that will put into me, I think will allow me to do this work in a more sustainable manner. Yeah. Um, so what are some changes you'd like to see for queer Black birthing people and families in Ontario? And then maybe also for Black queer midwives in Ontario, um, what are some <laughs> changes you'd like to see? I mean, first of all, the number of Black midwives in Ontario is very small. And then when you add, you know, you know the, the, the layer of queerness, it gets even to an even smaller pot, quite frankly. I think there's like, I don't know, four of us, five of us. Um, and I think, so on the changes on the patient side on, you know, for black queer, um, birthing parents and families, I think it's kind of a, it's, there's two pieces to it. So there's the, the side of the actual individual where I wish people would engage in their health earlier, sooner, um, I know that there's a lot of harm and a lot of there's a an immense amount of distrust of the of the medical care system because of the history of harm that has been done. Right. Obstetrics essentially was founded, you know, harming black women. Right. Where Jay Marion Sim started doing, um, you know, experiments on and say black women like Betsy and Arnica. Um, without anesthetic. So there's a legacy of harm that starts from the beginning of obstetrics. So I understand why there's a distrust in the healthcare system. Um, and I also wish that people would do the research to understand what exactly the harm is, because sometimes the harm wasn't even that, you know, people were given a disease or something happened to them. It was they were denied care. And so I really wish that people would understand that accessing care, taking care of your health from beginning before you even decide to get pregnant is actually one of the most radical things that you can do. Yeah. It's one of the, you know, the best ways that you can fight against the system is to take care of yourself. Um, recently, my one of my very good friends introduced me to the book Rest is Resistance by Trisha Hersey. She runs the NAP ministry and it has made me really think, and this is in part um, you know, it didn't inspire my sabbatical. I started reading it this weekend, but I'm like, oh yeah, this, you know, bolsters as to why I'm taking the sabbatical. I think it's, um, I wish that, and I think this is in part due to just the nature of the culture of North America. I wish that people would form more of a community, form more of a village again. Um, because I think also to birthing in North America in an urban environment can be quite an isolating experience. And I've been just so sad to see so many Black families just be so separated, whether they're, you know, newcomers, you know, recent immigrants who've just landed here and they've left their families of origin back home, but consequently they don't have the support they need once they've, you know, given birth. And it's very much a, you know, how do I, you know, go to work and make money and raise this child. And, you know, I wish there was more um, of a coming together of people to say, okay, let's 
find a way to collectively help each other as we raise these kids together, right? Like I think, think about as a group in the Caribbean, you know, my mom and her close friends, they all worked at the same, you know, the development bank, but all of us went to the same school. So one parent did pick up. All yeah. of us just went to the same activities. So there was one pickup. You know, we all just like, whose house are we going to next? And who's being, who's feeding all the kids at one house? You know, there was very much, uh, we're all going to band together. We're all trying to work together. And consequently, like I've had lifelong friendships um, with you know, everybody I grew up with. And, you know, it's just that understanding, like there's this community, this village, there's, you know, the one that you grew up with, but there's the one that you form and you can create. And I know that there's harm within the communities that we grew up with. Um, but I know that we also have the choice to make healthier decisions and form healthier bonds um, so that we can um, be less isolated because that like, you know, as the metaphor goes, like you can't really break a bundle of sticks. Right. And so th that, that, that community building is so crucial um, to improve the outcomes of everybody, because even within that community building, there's also going to be knowledge sharing. There's going to be information gathering. There's going to be just a lot more support and people feeling like they can take charge of their health because they're people to, to support that along yeah. their journey. Um, on the clinician side, I, it would be great if there were more, you know, uh, racialized clinicians. And I think also, too, and, I, and I've talked about this with some other um, BIPOC clinicians, is that it's more than just you have a racialized cl clinician, because I think we spend so much time talking about the impact of white supremacy that we never, ever get to address the intra- racial dynamics of the BIPOC community themselves, right? Like we ourselves don't all get along all the time because of, you know, intentional misinformation, intentional disharmony, intentional desiring to fracture these communities apart so that they don't, you know, band together and be strong together. Um, and, you know, I, as a consequence of that, I'm not going to say that like just automatically having a racialized clinician is going to solve the problem for Black you know, found black queer families, um, because even within our own BIPOC community, we have our own issues. We have issues of homophobia. We have issues of transphobia. We have issues of, you know, even discrimination against people if they don't speak a certain language or if they come from a certain country. And we really need to talk about that. Right. Um, I think also, too, it would be great if, you know, really understanding you know, the legacy of anti-Black racism, anti-Indigenous racism, you know, how that plays out. And that's really stressed amongst, you know, the education for all clinicians at all levels. Uh, I think that would be really important because I think sometimes people don't even realize just how insidious insidious things are um, in terms of how they even view people, even in terms of like, you know, lab results that I get back where, you know, they're talking about, oh, for kidney function, if the person is of, you know, African descent, then you multiply it by this. But that actually is not an actual value that has any scientific basis, right? Um, and it's actually led to harm for people. So I think even just re-examining, you know, the tests even that we order, or even just looking people as a whole, like, you know, um, oh, you have high blood pressure because you're black. It's like, no, you have high blood pressure because you're stressed, because you don't have a good diet, because you may smoke to manage, you know, said stress, um, because, you know, there's a lot of other challenges that you're dealing with. It's not just because you're black. I'm a black woman in a high stress job. My blood pressure is fine, but it's fine because I take care of my health. It's fine because of, you know, genetics. Um, and it's also fine because I really make, 
a, a strive as best as I can to prioritize my mental health and my well-being mm-hmm. at all costs. So yeah. it's a bit more nuanced than just looking at somebody and saying, oh, well, you're going to have this condition just because you're black. That's not true. You're going to miss a lot of stuff and you're going to misdiagnose people just by doing that. Definitely. Um, so you talked about support for uh, Black clinicians. Um, so what is your words of advice or words of wisdom for Black folk who are interested in becoming a midwife, a healthcare provider, or working in public health? Uh, uh, the public health piece, do it. It's great. Um, it's, it's very needed. I will say that. Um, the midwifery piece, yeah, some people might call me a traitor. I think you need to really think uh, a bit long and hard about being a midwife in Ontario because being a midwife overall it's a very enriching experience I think globally the majority of midwives of color will say like you know being a midwife has been so enriching it's been one of the happiest times of their lives when they were practicing but it depends on the model that you work in it depends on where you're working and it depends on you know, does that system support you? So, you know, a long, a big discussion that we all have been having is that, you know, and I know I'm going to get some heat for saying this, but hey, I'm on sabbatical, (laughs) is that um, I think that the model of Ontario midwifery was very much structured for middle-class white women who also were married to a cis man making a certain amount of money um, and they could just focus on that. But often a lot of BIPOC midwives are often the primary caregiver, their primary breadwinner in their families. And consequently, it's a, it's a lot harder to maintain the same standard of, of living as their white counterparts, because often they may not be married to a white partner who's, you know, in a high, higher income job. Um, they may be, you know, single parents, they may be queer parents. Um, and consequently, when you start adding those layers in, you don't have the same, you can't afford the same supports uh, as other colleagues can. Um, you also may be, because of the environments we live in, taking care of aging parents, young kids, and to afford, you know, caregivers to take care of the people that you love, while you take care of other people who are complete strangers, it can be quite of a strain, right? Um, I think that's also something that really has been striking to me in terms of, you know, doing this work is that there's very much a desire for um, for midwives to very much, you know, at the expense of their their own families and communities to go out and serve other people's families and communities. And at some point, I think people need to recognize that for Black families, for bi- for racialized families, for immigrant families, you know, that family is what nourishes you. And to spend a consistent amount of time away from that long periods of time away from that, it can actually be quite distressing and quite depleting. Um, and I think it's something that you have to consider. And again, you have to really have a, gr- a really strong and rock solid support system. Um, fortunately, there are different models for midwifery that are, are popping up. They're starting to come about. Um, and I think people should start thinking about like, what are my needs and what are, what different models of midwifery are out there that allow me to, you know, work as a midwife and then also make sure that my my own personal needs are met. Because I don't think it ever should be a sacrifice because it, it's, it never ends well for anybody. But in terms of public health, in terms of the research, I think the more and more people who can get involved in that, um, it will just grow the feel, it will change 
the the lens of the field i often have said to people that you know i think it's people from those communities should be doing research with those communities because they have a personal investment in it it's not just about you know publishing papers it's about i want this community to succeed not to say that not every single researcher who's you know research communities not like theirs you know has malicious intent or has a very you know an egocentric um point of view but i think it's that there it's important for the data to reside in the communities that is being collected from and empowers the community that's collected from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, those are all the questions I had. Anything you want to add? Uh, no. Thanks for taking the time out to uh, to to talk to me and for selecting me. I feel quite honored. You started reading that list, and I'm like, oh, I guess I have done something with my life. Done so much. Thank you so much. Um, Shani can be found at omvolition underscore health on Instagram. Thank you.